This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, good evening, everybody, and um, welcome back to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, I'm Jamie Jauncey. I'm, I'm lucky enough to sit on the board of this magnificent festival, and I know that I speak for everybody involved when I say that it's a huge privilege and pleasure this evening to welcome back to Charlotte Square, Booker Prize winner, author of The English Patient, Annual's Ghost, Divisadero. Um, and this is probably the most eagerly anticipated event of the entire 2011 festival, the worldwide launch of Michael's new novel, The Cat's Table, Michael Ondaatje. There was going to be a warning about noise, wasn't there? Was. You're absolutely right. Um, a brief warning that uh, at probably about 10 to 9 on a Saturday night, the um, tattoo let off the most God Almighty bang. Um, there may also be other noises of a similar nature, which will be um, him upstairs giving us another shower. But uh, if there is, we'll, 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 we'll speak up and nothing will be lost. And um, Michael will be signing books afterwards in the tent directly behind us. So I'm going to read for about half an hour and then we'll have a conversation. Uh, this is a book uh, set on a, on a ship in, 19, in the 1950s, and it's told mostly from the point of view of a, of a young 11-year-old boy. And one of the s consistent things in the early part of the book is that he keeps missing the smells of Sri Lanka, which is where the ship leaves from. And um, the smell of hemp, the smell of you know, grasses and tar and the sound of birds, etc. And then this takes place about page 61. Then one day, I smelled burning hemp on the ship. For a moment, I stood still, then moved towards the staircase where it was stronger, hesitated about where to go, up or down, then climbed the stairs. The smell was coming from a corridor on D level. I stopped where it was strongest, got on my knees, and sniffed at the inch of crack under the metal door. I knocked quietly. Yes. I went in. Sitting at a desk was a gentle-looking man. The room had a porthole. It was open and the smoke from a rope whose end was burning seemed to follow a path over the man's shoulder and out the porthole. Yes, he asked again. I like the smell. I miss it. He smiled at me and gestured to a space on his bed where I could sit. He pulled open a drawer and brought out a coil of rope a yard long. It was the same sort of hemp rope that hung slowly burning outside the cigarette stores in Colombo, anywhere in the city, really where you lit a single smoke you had just bought there, or if you were running and wanted to cause a disturbance, you used the end of the burning coal to light the fuse of a firecracker. I know I shall miss it too, he said, and other things. Kotamali, balsam, I have such things in my suitcase, for I'm leaving forever. He looked away for a moment. It was as if he had said it aloud to himself for the first time. What is your name? I told him. If you are lonely, you can always come here, he said. I nodded, then slipped out the door and left. His name was Mr. Fonseca, and he had been traveling to England to be a teacher. I would visit him every few days. He knew passages from all kinds of books he could recite by heart, and he sat at his desk all day wondering about them, thinking what he could say about them. I knew scarcely a thing about the world of literature, 
but he welcomed me with unusual and interesting stories, stopping abruptly in mid-tale and saying that someday I should find out what happened after that. You will like it, I think. Perhaps he will find the eagle, or they will escape the maze with the help of someone they are about to meet. Often during the night, while stalking the adult world with Ramadan and Cassius, two other boys his age, I'd attempt to add to the bare bones of the adventure that Mr. Fonseca had left unfinished. He was gracious with his quietness. When he spoke, he was tentative and languid. Even then, I understood his rareness by the pace of his gestures. He stood up only if it was essential, as if he were a sick cat. He was not used to public effort, even though he was now going to a part of the public world as a teacher of literature and history in England. I tried to coax him up on deck a few times, but his porthole and what he could see through it seemed enough nature for him. With his books, burning rope, some bottled Kalani River water, as well as a few family photographs, he had no need to leave this time capsule. I would visit that smoky room if the day was dull, and he would at some point begin reading to me. It was the anonymity of the stories and the poems that went deepest to me, and the curl of a rhyme was something new. I had not thought to believe he was actually quoting something written with care in some far century earlier. He had lived in Colombo all his life, and his manner and accent were a product of the island. But at the same time, he had this wide-ranging knowledge of books. He'd sing a song from the Azores or recite lines from an Irish play. I brought the two other boys, Cassius and Ramadan, to meet him. He had become curious about them, and he made me tell him of our adventures on the ship. He beguiled them as well, especially Ramadan. Mr. Fonseca seemed to draw forth an assurance or a calming quality from the books he read. He'd gaze into the unimaginable distance, one could almost see the dates flying off the calendar, and quote lines written in some piece of stone or papyrus. I suppose he remembered these things to clarify his own opinion, like a man buttoning up his own sweater to give warmth just to himself. Mr. Fonseca would not be a wealthy man, and it would be a spare life he, would, he was certain to lead as a school teacher in some urban location. But he had a serenity that came with the choice of his life that he wanted to live. And this serenity and certainty I've seen only among those who have the armor of books close by. I'm aware of the pathos and the irony that comes with such a portrait. All those foxed penguin editions of Orwell and Gissing and the translations of Lucretius with their purple borders that he was bringing with him. He must have believed it would be a humble but good life for an Asian living in England, where something like his Latin grammar could be a distinguishing sword. I wonder what happened to him. Every few years, whenever I remember, I will look up any reference to Fonseca in a library. I do know that Ramadan kept in touch with him during his early years in England, but I did not. Though I did realize that people like Mr. Fonseca came before us like innocent knights in a more dangerous time, and on the very same path we ourselves were taking now, and at every step there were no doubt the same lessons, not poems, to learn brutally by heart. Just as there was the discovery of the good and cheap Indian restaurant in Lewisham, and the similar opening up and seeding of blue aerograms to Ceylon and later to Sri Lanka, and the same slights and insults and embarrassments over the pronouncing of the letter V and our rushed manner of speaking, 
and most of all, the difficulty of entrance. And then perhaps a modest acceptance and ease in some similar cabin-like flat. I think about Mr. Fonseca at those English schools wearing his buttoned sweater to protect himself from English weather and wonder how long he stayed there and if he did really stay forever or whether in the end he could no longer survive it even though for him it was the center of culture and instead returned home on an airlock of flight that took only two-thirds of a day to begin teaching again at a place like Nugegode. London returned. Were all those memorized paragraphs and stanzas of the European canon he brought back the equivalent of a coil of hemp or a bottle of river water? Did he adapt them or translate them, insist on teaching them in a village school on a blackboard in the sunlight, the rough call of forest birds screeching nearby, some idea of order at Nugegoda? Our ship continued to move northeast, crossing into higher latitudes, and the passengers could feel the nights becoming cooler. One day we were told over the loudspeakers that a film would be shown after the dinner setting on the deck outside the Celtic room. By dusk, stewards set up a stiff sheet at the stern and brought out a projector, which they covered mysteriously. Half an hour before the film began, about 100 people had made up a restless audience, the adults sitting on chairs, the children on the deck itself. Ramadan and Cassius and I got as close to the screen as possible. This was our first film. There was a loud crackling in the speakers and suddenly images were thrown onto the screen which was surrounded by a receding purple sky. We were just days away from landing in Aden, so the choice of the four feathers was, I see now, somewhat tactless. As it, as it attempted to compare the brutality of Arabia with a civilized though foolish England. We watched an Englishman having his face branded. We got to hear the sizzle of his flesh so that he could pass himself off as an Arab in an invented desert nation. An old general in the story referred to the Arabs as something like the Gazara tribe, irresponsible and violent. Later on, another Englishman was blinded by staring at the desert sun and he wandered slowly about for the rest of the film. As for the subtler issues of jingoism and cowardice in a time of war, those were blown away by the strong winds into the passing ocean. The sound system was not good, besides which we were not used to atonal English accents. We simply followed the action. There was also the possibility of an additional subplot for our ship was approaching a storm zone. And if we turned our heads away from the drama on the screen, we could see forks of lightning in the distance. The movie, as we rolled under the gradually disappearing stars, was being shown in two locations. It had begun half an hour earlier in the Pipe and Drums Bar in first class, projected to a quieter group of about 40 well-dressed passengers. When the first reel was over, that segment of the film was rewound and carried in a metal container down to our projector on deck for its alfresco showing, while the first class audience watched the second reel. As a result, there were confusing fallouts of sound that merged the two screenings. The volume on every speaker was turned to maximum because of the roar of the sea winds, and we were constantly assaulted by contrapuntal noises. While watching a tense scene, we could hear rousing songs in the officer's mess. Still, our alfresco showing had the atmosphere of a night picnic. We were all given a cup of ice cream 
And as you waited for the first class reel to be over and then threaded into our projector, the juggler troop of acrobats performed. They were doing a juggling act with large butcher knives. Just at the moment, we heard the bloodthirsty screaming of attacking Arabs from the speakers in first class. The juggler troop was parodying these yells with comic body movements. And then the Hyderabad mind stepped forward to announce that a brooch somewhere that had been lost the day before could be found hanging over the projector's lens. And so just as first class was witnessing the brutal massacre of English troops, exultant cheers rose from our audience. Our film proceeded on the seemingly live canvas of a flapping screen. The plot was full of grandness and confusion of acts of cruelty that we understood and responsible honor that we did not. Cassius would go around for days claiming to be part of the Oronze tribe, irresponsible and violent. Unfortunately, the anticipated storm burst loose over the ship, and as the rain hit the projector, the hot metal began hissing. A steward attempted to hold an umbrella over it. A gust ripped the screen loose and sent it skittering over the ocean like a ghost, and the images continued to be shot out, targetless over the sea. We never learned the end of the story, not on that journey. I did a few years later by reading A.E.W. Mason's novel in the Dulwich College Library. He turned out to be an old boy of the school. In any case, that night saw the beginning of violent storms that assaulted the Aronze. It was only after this was over that we escaped the turmoil of the ocean and landed in the real Arabia. Perhaps it had been the failure of that film to satisfy us. I still cannot explain why we did what we did then did. It may simply have been because it was to be our first sighting of a storm at sea. After the projector had been rolled away and the chairs stacked, there was a sudden lull upon the ocean and in the sky above us, so that now even though we were told that the radar had blinked the existence of another approaching upheaval, the winds had quieted, and this gave us time to prepare ourselves. It was Cassius, of course, who persuaded me into the best seat in the house for the catastrophe. We talked it over near the lifeboats. Ramadan did not wish to participate, but he offered to help set it up. A day earlier, we had come across some ropes and tackle in a storeroom that had been left open during the lifeboat drill. And so that night during the lull, while nearby, nearly all the pas passengers had returned to their cabins, we made our way to the open promenade deck near the bow and found various permanent objects we could attach ourselves to with ropes. We heard the captain announce that they were expecting a 50-knot gale and to prepare for the worst. Cassius and I lay on our backs side by side, and Ramadan began to tie us with ropes to some V-shaped rivets and a bollard. He was hurrying, for he could see the storm coming. He checked his knots in the darkness and left us there spread-eagled and tightly harnessed. The deck was deserted, and not much happened for a while, save for a light rain. Perhaps we had veered away from the storm. But then the gale hit and pulled the air out of our mouths. We had to turn our heads away from its rush in order to breathe, the wind buckling like metal around us. We'd imagine lying there, conversing in wonder about the lights of the storm at some great height above us but we were now almost drowning from the water in the air, the rain, and the sea that was leaping over the railings and swirling across the deck. Lightning lit the rain in the air above us, and then it was dark once more. 
a loose rope was slapping at my throat. There was only noise. We could not tell if we were screaming or only trying to. With each wave, it sounded as if the ship was breaking apart. And with each wave, the wash covered us until we were tilted upright again. We were aware of a constant rhythm. Whenever the ship plowed into the oncoming sea, we were swept around within the surf, unbreathing, while the stern rose into the air, the propellers out of their element screaming till they fell back down into the sea. And we on the bow leapt up again, unnaturally. As I lay on the promenade deck of the Aronze during those few hours, when we believed we had given up any chance of our lives, everything coalesced. I was something orderless in a jar, unable to escape what was happening, unable to get out of what was occurring. All I held on to was that I was not alone. Cassius was with me. Now and then our heads turned simultaneously in the lightning and we saw each other in the blunt, washed out face of the other. I felt I was caught in this place. If and when the ship pivoted its nose down and descended, overcome by some towering wave, Cassius and I would be still permanently tied to a pump generator or some such thing. There was no one else. We were the only ones on the surface of the ship, as if staked out for sacrifice. The waves shattered, rolled over us, and disappeared overboard as quick as a nightmare. Then we rose, then we dropped into the next valley. All that was holding us to safety was Ramadan's slight knowledge of knots. What did he know of knots? We assumed in our death throes that he had no knowledge of them. We were not safe at all. There was no sense of time. How long were we there before we were blinded by searchlights focused down from the bridge onto the two of us? Even in our frayed state, we sensed the outrage behind the light. Then it went out. Later, we learned all the names for storms. Chubasco, Squall, Cyclone, Typhoon. And later, we were told what it was like below deck, how the stained glass windows in the Caledonia room shattered and the electrical circuits burned out almost at once. So there were flashlights moving up and down the hallways, swaying their beams into the bars and lounges as people searched for missing passengers. Lifeboats broke partially free of the davits and hung tilted in midair. The ship's compasses spun. Mr. Hasty and Mr. Invernio were in the lightless kennels attempting to calm the dogs, tormented by the thunder in their ears. One wave hit the assistant purser, and the force of it washed out his glass eye. All this while our heads were stretched back to try to see how deep the bar would go on its next descent, our screams unheard, even to each other, even to ourselves even if the next day our throats were raw from yelling into that dark hallway of the sea. It seemed like hours before someone nudged me. The storm was still active, but calm enough now to send three sailors out to our rescue. They cut the ropes, the swelling knots had fused, and we were carried down a flight of stairs to a dining room cabin that was doubling as a medical center. There had been a few bashes to the head and broken fingers during the last hour or so. We were stripped down and each given a blanket. We were told we would sleep here. I recall that when I was lifted by the sailor, there was such warmth in his body. I remember that when someone removed my shirt, he said that all the buttons had been knocked loose. I saw Cassius's face as if all intricacy had been washed away. Then, just before we fell asleep, Cassius leaned over and whispered, 
don't forget, someone did this to us. And this is a sequence um, as the ship enters the Suez Canal. <coughs> we approach the can canal in darkness at the stroke of midnight. A few passengers camped on the decks to take in the experience and they were half asleep, scarcely conscious of the clangs and bells that guided our ship into the narrow eye of the needle that was El Suiz. We paused to take on an Arab harbor pilot who climbed from his barge up a rope ladder. He walked slowly towards the bridge, ignoring all authority around him. This was his property now. He would be the one to take us into an even, even shallower waters and adjust the angle of the ship so we could slip into the narrow canal on which we would travel the 190 kilometers to Port Said. We could see him in the brightly lit horizontal windows of the bridge beside the captain and two other officers. It was a night we never slept. In less than half an hour, we were sliding alongside a concrete dock with crates stacked into giant pyramids and men running with electrical cables and baggage carts alongside the slow-moving Oronze. Everywhere, there was fast, intense work under the pockets of sulfurous light. We could hear shouts and whistles, and in one of the intervals, we heard barking that made Ramadan think it might be his dog. The three of us hung over the railings, gulping in air, taking it in. This night turned out to be our most vivid memory of the journey, the time I stumbled upon now and then in a dream. We were not active, but a constantly changing world slid past our ship, the darkness various, full of suggestion. Unseen tractors were grinding along the abutments. The cranes bent low, poised to pluck one of us off, as we passed. We had crossed open seas at 22 knots, and now we moved as if hobbled, as at the speed of a slow bicycle, as if within the gradual unrolling of the scroll. Bundles were being flung up onto the foredeck. A rope had been fastened to the railing so a sailor could swing himself down to the passing land to sign territorial papers. I saw a painting leave the ship. In my sidelong glimpse, it appeared familiar I might have seen it in one of the first-class lounges. Why would a painting be removed from a ship? I could not tell whether everything taking place was carefully legal or a frenzy of criminality, for only a few officials oversaw what was going on, and all the deck lights were out, and all activity was hushed. There were just the lit windows of the bridge with the three constant silhouettes as if puppets guided the ship following the orders of the harbor pilot. He came out a few times onto the deck, whistled into the night to instruct a man he had recognized on shore. A concurring whistle replied, and we'd hear the splash of a dropped chain, and the bow of the ship would jerk suddenly to re-angle itself to one side or the other. Ramadan kept running up and down the length of the ship in search of the dog. Cassius and I perched precariously on the bow railing where we could witness the fragmentary tableaus below us a merchant with a stall of food, engineers talking by a bonfire, the unloading of refuse. All of them, all of this, we knew we would never see again. So we came to understand that small and important thing, that our lives could be large with interesting strangers who would pass us without any personal involvement. I remember still how we moved in that canal, our visibility m muted, 
and those sounds that were messages from shore and the sleepers on deck missing the panorama of, acti of activity. We were on the railing, bucking up and down. We could have fallen and lost our ship and begun another fate as paupers or princes. Uncle, we shouted, if someone came close enough to distinguish our small figures. Hello, uncle. And people would wave, fling us a grin. Everyone who saw us sliding by was an uncle that night. Someone threw us an orange, an orange from the desert. Cassius kept shouting for beaties, but they did not understand him. A dock worker held up something, a plant or an animal, but the darkness disguised it too well. No other vessel would be traveling that night in the canal's dark waters. Radio contacts had been at work for more than a day so that we would enter as we had to at the very moment of midnight. Under a swaying cord of electrical light, down there on shore was a man sitting at a makeshift table, filling out forms he handed to a runner who caught up with a ship and flung the papers with a metal weight so they landed at the feet of one of the sailors. We never stopped moving. We passed the runner, as well as the man at the table, furiously recording the charts of exchange, and a canteen cook beside an open fire roasting a thing whose odor was a gift, a desire in the night, a temptation to abandon the ship after all the European food we'd been eating for days. Cassius said, that is what frankincense smells like. And so our ship continued, guided by these strangers. We were collecting what was fresh from the land, bartering for objects thrown on board. Who knows what was exchanged that night and what cross-fertilization occurred as the legal papers of entrance and exit were signed and passed back down to land while we entered and left the brief and temporary world of El Suiz. There was a time in my late twenties when I suddenly had an urge to meet Cassius again. While I had kept in touch with and spent time with Ramadan and his family, I had not seen Cassius since the day our ship docked in England. And during this time, when I had the desire to see him, I came across an announcement in a London newspaper. There was a photograph of him. I would not have recognized the face except that it had his name beside it, older, darker, as different as I probably was from the boy I had been on that ship in the 1950s. It was an advertisement for a show of his paintings. And so I went into the city to a gallery on Cork Street. I went there not so much to see his art as to make contact with him, to have, I hoped, a long meal together and talk and talk and talk. I knew little of what had happened to him since our three weeks together. Although I knew he had become a well-considered painter, that surprised me. But was he as wild, I wondered? And had he remained as dangerous as he seemed to me when I was a boy? Some grains of Cassius had, after all, remained in my system. I looked again at the announcement I'd cut out of the newspaper, at the picture of him leaning against a white wall with a hint of belligerence. But Cassius was not there. It was a Saturday afternoon when I got to the gallery and was told the, ship had, and was told the show had opened a few evenings earlier and that Cassius had made his appearance then. I did not know much about the habits of the art world. It was a disappointment. But his absence did not matter, for what I saw in the paintings was Cassius himself. There were large canvases that filled the three rooms of the Warrington Gallery, about 15 of them. They were all about that night in El Suiz. The very same sulfur lights above the night activity that I still remembered 
or at least began to remember that Saturday afternoon, and the open fires, the ancient-looking logbook that being filled urgently by the scribe at the table in the crisp night air. I thought the paintings were abstractions at first. There was a sense in them that things were taking place on the edge of, or <clears throat> just beyond the painted colors. But once I knew where we were, everything altered. I even found Ramadan's small dog gazing up at the boat. All this enlarged me, and I did not know why. I suppose it clarified how close Cassius and I had been, real brothers. For he also had witnessed the people I saw that night, with whom we had felt so oddly aligned, whom we would never see again. Only there, that night city of another world. We had not talked of this, but it had somehow come to both of us. And now they were here with us. I walked over to the visitor's book, where people were expected to write comments. Some of them were quite grand, overly intellectual. Some just said, delightful. A loose, drunken scrawl that took over a whole page said, little old lady got mutilated late last night. It must have been written by one of his drunken friends. No one else had written on that page, and the sentence exposed itself there, quite solitary. I put down the date, and I wrote, the Aronze tribe, irresponsible and violent. Then I added, sorry to miss you. I left no address. I went outside, but something else held me, so I decided to walk through the gallery again. This time, glad there was hardly anyone there. And when I understood what it was that drew me, I circled the gallery once more to make sure. I read somewhere that when people first celebrated the distinct point of view of Latigue's early photographs, it took a while before someone pointed out that it was a natural angle of a small boy with a camera looking up at the adults he was photographing. What I was seeing now in the gallery was the exact angle of vision Cassius and I had that night, from the railing, looking down at the men working in those pots of light, an angle of 45 degrees, something like that. I was back on the railing, watching, which was where Cassius was emotionally when he was doing these paintings. Goodbye, he was saying to all of them, goodbye. So you heard it first in Charlotte Square. That was a world premiere. Um, the narrator of this story is an 11-year-old boy sailing from Ceylon to London to meet his estranged mother. His name is Michael. And for the first three or four chapters of the book, as I was reading it, I was convinced it was autobiography. Um, but you write an end, an end note, an author's note, which mm. perhaps I could just yeah. read the, what you say. Although the novel sometimes uses the coloring and locations of memoir and autobiography, the cat's table is fictional, from the captain and crew and all its passengers on the boat down to the narrator. So, Michael, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit more about what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually went on a trip when I was 11 years old. I have to confess this, you know, from Sri Lanka to England, and I was, a, you know, a boy. But that was, like, over 50 years ago. So, I, first of all, I don't remember it very well. And even at the time, I, I kind of blacked out that whole experience. So, I mean, what I have in my mind is just the fact that I was on a ship 
for 21 days. And I remember playing ping pong, and that's about it. And which is not a real enough of a plot for a novel. So, um, so I had to essentially invent an adventure. You know, and I, so I had two boys, one Ramadan, one Cassius, roughly, roughly my age, and then uh, a cousin, and then I, I had invented a jazz musician and this poor, unfortunate captain of the ship and uh, many other characters. And, and so it really was an invention of characters who housed the ship, uh, housed, were living in the ship in a way. So, um, and then I wasn't going to use my name, but then when I wrote Michael, I thought, my God, I, I can't get away with this, you know. And uh, I thought, well, I might as well. And because it creates a kind of intimacy, you know, instantly, which you think is memoir. But at the same time, when I wrote Michael Dunn, I realized that I had to make him a very different person to me. You know, so immediately kind of he was doing things and he behaved a certain way that was not typical of me. So, you know, you are playing along with this kind of um, half fictional, half um, non-fictional game, you know. It's not, a, not even a game, you know. I mean, I really do see it as a, as a novel, and that's about it, actually. And I mean, if, 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 but if you remember so little of the original event, why did you want to write the story at all? Um, it was something I had never thought of writing. And then about, um, just after writing Divisadero, I was talking to my kids, and I said I'd come to England on a ship, and they said, who came with you? And I said, no one came with me. You know, I was put on this ship, and they said they couldn't believe it. And then suddenly I couldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> How dare my parents put the kid on a ship? And I thought, my God, this is, actually this is a gift. You know, it's a gift of adventure, of freedom, which we never get as children, usually. And so that, that was what allowed me to kind of write the story. There was a, the possibility of, you know, uh, given this opportunity to write a story where I could invent, you know, a whole uh, 21 days I could take up and govern and affect the whole life in a way. And of course it is a universe, that ship. It, it is a universe. It's a completely hermetically sealed universe, right. isn't it? Yeah. And there is, there is an entire world of characters on the boat. Yeah, and the, the minute I, I gave myself the opportunity of fiction, I, you know, I have you know, this thief. I always have a thief in my book. So this thief came into the book and, you know, and some wonderful you know, characters came into the story, acrobats and so forth. There's something else that you say, um, rather beautifully, I thought. Um, there is a story always ahead of you, barely existing. Mm. Only gradually do you attach yourself to it and feed it. And I, so that sort of made me wonder whether, uh, were you saying we simply don't know what's coming down the road at us, or that everything that is our present experience is possible material for a future story one might create? I, I think certainly the latter is there, but I think it's also finding you know, how we find a life, you know, how we find a career. I mean, I'm talking there about the woman Asuntha, who you know becomes an acrobat, and um, you know it's a, it's luck whether we find that career or that you know way of life or not, you know. And suddenly it does apply to being a writer. And and the Michael in the book is a writer, and so you have a kind of looking back as a writer on this boy who is you know 11. But there's something else that happens in the book too, which, which is quite a departure from from certainly from Anil's ghost and the English patient where you have this very lyrical and, and profoundly reflective, these passages. Mm -hmm. um, this, and I guess, is this because of the constraint of having to write as an 11-year-old, that um, it, you're, you're much more, the narrative pace is much faster. It's less reflective. There's a different voice. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, what was the opportunity was to write a book from the point of view of an 11-year-old. You know, I thought, oh, well, again, what a gift. You know, so, and you, so you're writing it from the point of view of someone who is witnessing things adults don't normally witness because kids are invisible. And at the same time, they're not understanding what's going on. So you know, you have to kind of, you're playing with that kind of duality. And at the same time, I realized that I, I didn't want the whole book to be from the point of view of the 11-year-old. I wanted it to be from the point of view of the 11-year-old when he was older looking back. And um, so I had to have a, a voice for the book that was elastic enough to allow both perceptions. And that was a very difficult thing to do. I mean, I had to kind of, so for instance, there are scenes when the boy is describing stuff, but the language is an adult uh, language. I wasn't going to end up with kind of, you know, monosyllables. Um, and, you know, it was almost like when that scene happens, when he goes to the gallery, that's practically the first time the adult voice clicks in. And it was like, ah, thank God, <laughs> you know, I can now talk in my other voice, a deeper voice or something. And later when the book, there's a, a scene in England when, that involves Ramadan when he's, he's an adult. And it was such a relief to kind of get to that voice, you know, though I was loving this other voice. So I, and I do go back and forth in a way. But I really wanted to have a, that kind of double perception of the whole event. Because we don't understand things as kids. And I wanted some kind of understanding even if it wasn't the correct understanding. Although, I mean, it, it, he's a kid, he's an 11-year-old, but it is nevertheless a, a, a literal and a metaphorical rite of passage, this yeah. story, isn't it? Yeah. Because, I mean, the, the sea voyage, of course, is, is the path. I mean, they do everything but cross the line, in fact. Yes. Um, but then there's also, there's also the, 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 the fact that he, he is becoming acquainted for the first time with the adult world mm -hmm. via the cat's table. Tell us about the cat's table. Well, I, I was, I'd begun the book, and I was talking to someone uh, in Germany, and they said, you know, uh, they were telling me a story about, you know, they were at some event, and they were at the cat's table. And I said, what the hell's that? And they said, well, it was one of those, you know, very posh dinners in, in some ballroom. And the least significant table in Germany is called the cat's table, but in German, of course. And, and I thought, oh, that's a, that's a useful thing to remember. So I have you know, Mr. Laskiti, uh, one, one of the people at the cat's table, said, well, where are the cat's table? The captain's over there. And, we are the most insignificant, least privileged people on the ship. So, and there's a lot of about, you know, the power of people and, and uh, those without power and those with power in the story. The, um, <clears throat> the passage immediately following the storm, when Cassius and um, Michael are hauled up by the captain, yeah. is one of the funniest things I've read in years. It had me absolutely chortling with laughter. You must have, I, I felt you had great fun writing that. That, that little scene. Yeah, you know, it was funny. I, I didn't know that scene, you know, rather naively, I did not know that scene was coming, but then I realized it had to come, you know, that it had to be the third act to that storm. You know, you had the film, and then you had the storm, and then how they got out of it with Cassius's wretched line about someone did this to us. So then the whole plot opens up again, you know, and it was a very distrustful captain who's fed up with all these kids causing trouble. There's a lot of trouble on caused by these children on the show. I mean, they, they are almost entirely unsupervised, aren't they? they or they are, appear they, to be. They're they are un feral. unsupervised. I mean, my favorite bit is where they kind of, they go to all the kind of lifeboats and eat all the emergency chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> they, and they also spy from the lifeboats they, on the nocturnal goings on. Yes, a lot, a lot of spying, yes. as children do. <laughs> as writers do. <laughs>
Um, we've got about just over 10 minutes left, and I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, you have things you would like to ask Michael. Um, we've got microphones, so do we have a question? Yes, we have one up at the top here. Just wait, the microphone will come your way. If you could keep your hand up just so we can see where it's going to. Yeah, hi, hi thanks. Um, I mean, really enjoyed that, and uh, it was very different from your other novels, which they're all kind of unprecedented, whereas this one, with a boy being stowing away to sea, it's, it, it appeals to a lot of stuff that's in other novels, you know, like Robert Louis Stevenson mm -hmm. or whatever, or the, the people on the side of the boat are almost like the Indians in, um, in, in Moby Dick. Mm. And, um, and the other thing which is new is, it, I think, it, is it the first book you've written in all in the first person? And I'm just wondering if you, apart from your, your memoir, yeah. so I just was wondering what those two originals were, were kind of... Well, I, I certainly wanted to have that kind of boy's own story, you know, element into the book, you know, and, and there's a early, very early scene in the book where uh, the narrator talks about reading boy's own adventures, where, taking a train in, in Sri Lanka. Um, and as for the, the so I, I wanted to kind of, and in fact, later in the story, there, there's a kind of huge dramatic plot that, you know, evolves over murders and prisoners and stuff like that, um, which may or may not be imagined or not. But um, I, I, mean, I, I just seemed to be natural that I, go, I would go into the first person in this book. I think there's, there's, there's some sections in, in the first person in Coming Through Slaughter, and certainly in Running the Family, the memoir, there, there's, it's in the first person. But it, again, it was, you know, it allowed me, a, it allowed me another voice, you know, to have that first person voice, that kind of informal, almost like that kind of essay element that I like, you know, in, in fiction sometimes. So the essay voice comes in the older Michael. More questions? Yes, yeah. we've got some down here. Do we have a, uh, this one here and then. Mr. Mandashi, it's a very um, uh, lovely talk that you, um, reading that you gave. I wanted to ask, um, when you depicted the character, Mr. Fonseca, um, a child appreciating that sort of thing, I know you said it's fiction, but I'd like to think it was perhaps real. Was there a figure in your life who was as eclectic as that, and, and as it were, sowed the seed for your future imaginings? There, there was, I mean, there was a character like that, but that character was not on a ship. You know, I mean, I, I met someone who was from Sri Lanka who, you know, I, I remember talking to him when I was, uh, he was, uh, came to England actually at a certain time, and uh, I remember he was a great encourager, you know, for a while, I, most people thought I was a wastrel, you know, at the age of 17, 18, and he was one guy who said, no, he sort of believed in me. But, um, so he, he is an invention, very much an invention. I mean, a lot of the description of Fonseca is an invention. But, um, you know, what happens with fiction is, I mean, like the, the boys, Cassius and Raman, and that, they're quite drawn in quite a lot of detail. But there, were, there wasn't the Cassius, there wasn't the Raman, but, you know, I mean, I'm sure that um, we all have good friends and we all have bad friends, you know, and at, at different times in our lives. And I think all those characters filled up the, you know, Ramadan Cassius, you know, Emily, Fonseca. Um, I was wondering about the character Michael. Is, is he the 11-year-old you would have liked to have beaten? The 11-year-old you would have liked to have been is Oh, I thought it said beaten. My, no. uh, oh, beaten. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that was the captain's job. Yes, that was the captain's job. Um, Sure, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's very, I mean, since the book's been written, it's kind of interesting to see 
I'm just conscious of, of all these books about childhood, I mean, really good books about childhood, often written by quite old people. Not that I'm that old. You know, I mean, if you think of Bergman's um, Fanny and Alexandra, you know, it's, this is a, a wonderful book about childhood by, you know, an older filmmaker. And um, so I, I think there is a kind of desire to kind of, not in a way you're recognizing some element in yourself, but you, this isn't me in any kind of way. So it is a kind of the invention of a, to satisfy yourself, I suppose. But fiction is like that. So the answer is perhaps it, it is how you would like to have been, in a way. Well, I may have been yes. like that. You know, I don't know. You don't, uh, you don't I'm not that. saying no. Yes. You know. <laughs> Where else do we have a question? Ah, sorry, right over here. I, this is a bit of a weird question, but uh, oh dear. Uh, so no, no, it's okay. <laughs> so in this book, you have this part where uh, you talk about um, a French filmmaker or something, and, yes. uh, and there's this observation that the audience shouldn't presume they know more about the characters than they know about themselves. Right. And I was thinking that about your own characters as the author. Do you sometimes feel that relationship towards your characters themselves that they almost? I always have this feeling in reading them that they have a life of their own, almost beyond even your hands. I don't know if that's a fair thing to ask. Yeah, that's, I think that's very fair. And actually, I like that little moment when I, well, it's the adult Michael saying, I, I was at a, you know, at a master class by one of the Dardenne brothers. And he says this, he, I, he actually said this, and he said that, and, and it's true, I think, you know, we tend to kind of be, feel we can judge characters on film. And he says, we can't, you know, we never, we never know more than the character on, in the story. You know, um, they know more than about themselves than we do. You know, we can l slot them in here and there, but even that is a kind of simplification. And I, I really do feel that. I mean, I really do feel that they're, like Mr. Skeety and some of those characters, and even Mr. Mazapa, we're not quite sure what happens to him. We're not quite sure what exactly happened to Mr. Skeety in the past and in the present. And I want that element of um, possibility to exist in those characters offstage. You know, and I've always felt this actually, in in something like in the skin of a lion when um, Clara disappears for about a hundred pages, we don't really know what she did, and when she comes back, she's a changed person, and we have to rediscover her again. So it's something I I, I hate the kind of puppetry of uh, using um, characters in books when they just seem to be just puppets. You know. Thank you. Hang on, let's just get the microphone, then everyone can hear you. Yes, you've taken uh, a, a trip on a ship um, since after you were 11, because you, your boys have such fun in yeah. the early morning when everybody just sleeps them from the night before. <laughs> yeah, actually, I did take a, uh, I did take a trip. I, I don't usually mention this, but I, I, I did because um, I'd written, pretty well written the book, and I just thought I'd better check a few things. <laughs> so I did take a ship from America to England. And what happened to me was very strange. I became, you know, an 11-year-old boy. And I kind of was suspiciously watching everyone. And I went to the table I was allotted to, and I saw these people there who were not my characters. And I said, oh, I'm not sitting there. And, you know, and, I, and I, I, I was in the cafeteria for the whole trip, you know. And I didn't talk to anyone on the whole trip. You know, it was kind of, kind of great, actually. <laughs> Yes, in the front here. 
What inspired you to write The English Patient? What inspired me to write The English Patient? Um, uh, I'm, that's a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was, a, there was a story about a, 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 a spy who went to Cairo. And um, in something I read, the, what was interesting about the, the, the original story was that the man who took the spy to Cairo sounded really interesting. And he was an uh, archaeologist and an explorer. And he seemed to be very interesting to me. But what really began was I began the book with, with not knowing who the people were. There was a patient in a bed talking to a nurse. And that, that's how it really began. And uh, I didn't know the backgrounds of any of these people. And I tend to begin books with a kind of outline of a situation or a character. Or, and so I was trying to find out who this person was. And around that time, I discovered the story about the, the archaeologist taking the spy across the desert during the Second World War. And uh, that's how it began. You know, and it, I tend to begin with character and situation and, and a, and a location and a time. So that's quite a lot of things. You know, just no story, you know, or no idea for a story. Because once you start, if you begin, for me, if I begin with an idea for a book, that idea runs out after four pages, you know. And you, it, the, the idea is never as interesting as what you discover while you're actually writing the story. So lots of things, you know, what I was, what I was at that time wrote that story, I think. So although, although, you, um, although you invented all the characters in the cat's table, was the process of remembering as much as you could of being 11, did that actually open the doors to, I mean, are some of those characters fr people from, or sort of uh, creations of people from way back in your life? Well, certainly, you know, <clears throat> as I said, you know, some of my school friends in Sri Lanka and in England, because I went to school in England, uh, were bad, you know. And I was actually pretty bad at that time. So, I mean, I, I was sort of celebrating that badness, you know. Um, and some of the stuff in Sri Lanka before he gets on the ship where he remembers his childhood, some of those scenes are more real than the ship, which is pretty much an invention, mm -hmm. which might be why you read it as memoir, you know, at that time. Yeah? Yes. Um, just back here. My question might draws on a couple of other questions that people have asked, but um, when you talk about the characters and not wanting them to be puppets, because um, certainly some of your books that I've read, there, there definitely is. There, you can tell the depth of the character, but you know, it leaves a lot to the imagination. Mm -hmm. So in your imagination, in your mind, do you feel that you have the character fleshed out, but that's not what you're writing on the page? Or you know, are you mindfully leaving that open just for the reader or No, I mean, I, OK. Um, no, I, I, I don't know more than you do. You know, I mean, when I'm, oh, here we are. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, 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 I write as much about the characters as I can, unless it's, it, you know, it's not that important. I mean, I, I don't want to say everything. And I mean, I could write more about character X, character Y, but all that is essential to the book is that. But I don't know a, a lot more than what is there in the, on the page. Yes, so there's one. We'll yeah. take we'll take one more because we've we're going to have to stop in a couple of minutes. So, well, that, yeah. as you say that um, you don't remember or you didn't remember very much about the voyage you made yourself because mm -hmm. you were 11 years old, but um, 
you, you gave a remarkable description of the improvised cinema show on the after deck uh, with the flapping screen. And you couldn't have, <laughs> you, you must either have remembered that or somebody told you about it. Because that's exactly what used to happen before they had proper cinemas on board trip. Hmm. Well, um, I'm afraid I invented it. <laughs> but, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I try and make it as realistic as possible. And, and you know, I, I, one thing I did pick up was that films were sometimes shown in different locations. Uh, that gave me the clue to be perversely funny about the four feathers. But, um, and I did look at kind of cross sections of ships. I noticed that there was a, for the first class, there was a little cinema on, you know, on one deck and then I assumed films were shown on the other deck. I mean, I always, perhaps I had, I had seen a film as a kid going across on a ship. Yeah. And perhaps I was caught up in a storm. It was the captain on the scene. People sleeping on the forecastle or on the forward deck was not very popular as far as the captain would be concerned. Yeah. No wonder you were taken to task. Yeah, uh, the captain had a very difficult time. I was saying before that my son reading the book said, God, you, you've been very unfair to this poor captain. You know, I mean, I mean more and more terrible things happen to this captain as, as the book progresses. In fact, at one point, the narrator lists all the wrong things the captain has done, you know, which goes on for about half a page. Well, I think if you want to find out what the yes. captain got wrong, you're <laughs> going to have to buy the book, uh, because we've run out of time, ladies and gentlemen, uh, prompted very neatly by the tattoo this time. Um, so really, it just remains to me to, to say an enormous thank you thank to you. Michael. It's been a real thank pleasure you. to hear you speak and read. Just, we're just going to go around the corner to the, to the book signing tent. So if you can give us a moment so we don't get crushed in the stampede. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.